From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experience as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Today, we mark our final episode of Season 2 of Orchestrating Change. And with us for this are three very special guests who are inaugural participants in the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. They are Irene Guggenheim-Triana, Samaria Hill, and Valerie Mathis. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Hi, everybody. It's so wonderful to have you all on. Uh, I'm going to have you all introduce yourselves a little bit more. Uh, I know you really well because we've been spending literally all summer together. Basically, uh, two days a week, I see them on uh, Zoom for three hours. So I think I've seen them quite a bit so far. But we'll just kind of go around the Zoom room, as it were, and say hello to each other. So Irene, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off. Sure thing. Hello, my name's Irene. I am going into my fourth year at The Ohio State University. I'm majoring in instrumental music education with a certificate in educational ethics and social justice, and my primary instrument is flute. And originally, I am from the D.C. area, Tacoma Park, Maryland. Amazing. I'll now pass it over to Samaria. All right. Hi, I'm Samaria. I'm going to be a freshman at Akron University and I'm majoring in music education with um, my primary instrument being classical guitar. And I'm based in the Canton area right now. I did graduate from McKinley right beside the Canton Symphony. And yeah. Awesome, yay. Um, and last but not least, Valerie. Hello, um, I'm Valerie and I am a recent graduate of Cleveland State School of Music. Um, my major was Bachelor of Arts in Music with a focus on arts administration. And um, I'm looking forward to what's to come. Yay. So I'm so excited to have the three of you. You all represent um, a pretty diverse uh, kind of sections of the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program. Um, not only are you, you know, from different areas, but you're also in different stages of life right now. We've got someone entering college, someone going into their last year, and someone who just left. So I, there's a lot of really interesting perspectives here in this room. Um, and I'm really excited to just talk a little bit about who you are, what this summer has been like, your perspective on the podcast and the future of, you know, everything that's going on here. So I'll kind of just ask the first thing of why did you end up doing the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program? And before you answer, I'll explain. I just realized people probably don't know what it is I, who are I listening. Was say, I was actually <laughs> going to ask the first yeah. person if they wanted to talk a little bit about what the Orchestrating Change yeah. Leadership Program is and what a typical day or week in the life of a participant looked like this summer. 
Irene, why don't you start us off? No pressure. Okay. Um, <laughs> so basically what the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program has been is we've met on Zoom twice a week, roughly from like nine to noon, although that has been flexible. And we've gotten the chance to network with people all over the field of classical music, uh, performers, educators, arts administrators, conductors, uh, the whole nine yards. And we've discussed a lot of issues pertaining to the field of classical music and specifically um, equity and diversity and inclusion within classical music. So why we do have issues within this field of DEI practices and why we this is something that we need to fix uh, yesterday and how what steps we can take both within our little niches within the field to try and uh, make this genre or this industry, depending on how you choose to put it, um, a more welcoming and equitable place for everyone. So we've had a lot of these Zoom meetings with a bunch of different experts. Usually if they've interviewed with the podcast before, we listen to their podcast ahead of time uh, to try and get a bit of a foundation on who they are and some of their philosophies and be able to ask some more in-depth questions about their experiences. Um, we also have had career building portions of the program. Uh, we did an activity where we sent resumes and cover letters to Rachel and then she gave us feedback and then we had to do specific resumes and cover letters for a hypothetical job opening and then she gave us feedback on those which I know personally for me was super helpful going into my last year and having to apply to uh, real jobs <laughs> in the not so distant future. Um, we also did informational interviews with people in the field uh, I was fortunate enough to do my informational interview with Dr. Ana Brantes, who I know has previously been a guest on this podcast. Um, she was lovely in that I learned so much from being able to sit down and talk with her. Uh, so the interv informational interview portion of the program was something that was really beneficial for all of us. And the last portion, which is I think one of the most exciting parts of the program, is we have been able to start working on a extracurricular beginner strings program slash mentorship program slash overall music related after school program. Initially, when we started the program, the idea was that we would all come up with active with potential programs that the symphony could adopt to equitize their practices or the field of classical music as a whole, and that we'd kind of split into small groups and at the end of the summer, we'd pitch them to the symphony board. They decide, oh, are we going to take this on? Are we not going to take this on? But we kind of, when we were brainstorming project ideas one day, we talked about like a peer mentorship program, but also like a private lessons program, but also a program where we give students advice on college apps and the FAFSA and music mm -hmm. auditions and professional advice and stuff like that. And we were kind of like, hey, this could all kind of jive together nicely. Maybe we'll all work together to pitch this project. And then uh, Rachel, I believe it was two days later uh -huh. that <laughs> Canton City Schools reached out was like, hey, let's, we'd like to collaborate on some kind of a project. And so then instead of uh, working together on a presentation to pitch to the board at the end of the summer, this is something that's actually happening. And we're doing a presentation that about what is going to happen yeah. instead of what we'd like to happen so yeah. all that put together it's been a lot but it's been so much fun uh <laughs> we've been really lucky it's a super super great group of participants and it's been really great getting to know everyone and hearing everyone's opinions and life experiences and stuff like that so it's been super cool what it's been the summer yeah and a huge <laughs> kudos to my 
co-host here for pulling the entire thing together, organizing it absolutely from scratch. <laughs> Rachel has done an incredible, incredible job of organizing this incredible experience for the three of you. It's, I mean, they, Irene I just, they kind of hijacked my idea and made it better um, is what happened, really. They, because I was, you know, I was thinking the whole point of this, you know, leadership program is to take what we're doing here on the podcast and actually turn it into action, right? We do a lot of talk, but we want action to happen. So, uh, you know, thinking about several things that we could do at the symphony, pitching it to the board. And they were like, no, 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 Rachel, we're going to all work together on one big program and then actually make it happen. And I was like, okay, that's fine by me. Um, so I I'm curious, Samaria, you know, you're the youngest participant in the group. Uh, you're going to be going to college, uh, but you're ahead of the game when it comes to, you know, getting involved with this type of stuff and learning about it. So I'm curious as to kind of what made you want to do the program and why you ended up doing it, you know, in the long run. Yeah, so um, I heard about the program through uh, George Dean, my uh, classical guitar teacher. And throughout this year, you know, especially a lot of stuff has gone on, you know, just a whole big thing, I'm sure everyone knows. And me and George, we had a lot of conversations on diversity and inclusion and especially in classical music. And it's something that I became very passionate about this year. And when he told me about the program, I was, to honestly, I was very hesitant to join at first, just because I was like, well, will I have time for this and everything? And I was kind of going back and forth. And at like the last minute before I was like, yes, I'm gonna do this. I was like, well, it's more than it's like, it's not about me, you know, it's about, the children that we can help through what this program can do. And so I was just like, yeah, you know, it's it'll be an experience for me, but I know that in the long run, it's gonna really help a lot of students. I, I love that. And I, you know, I, you, um, and you and Valerie actually both represent, um, you know, not traditional classical instruments of an orchestra. You play classical guitar, Valerie's a, a singer, specifically opera. Um, so, it, you know, I, it was so cool to have you come on to the program, not only because uh, you have an interesting perspective, but you have that perspective because you are, you know, from Canton, Ohio. You just graduated from McKinley High School. Your perspective ended up being kind of crucial when it came to creating this after-school program because you were a part of that school system. You went to Canton City Schools. Um, so it was so awesome to have you a part of the program. Um, and Valerie, we met kind of interestingly. I actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I called, I called the Cleveland State School of Music saying, hey, who should I send this info to? We're doing a leadership program this summer. And you said, oh my gosh, that sounds so great. I wish I could do it. And I said, you can. <laughs> and then I saw your, you, you, you came, your application came in, uh, which was so wonderful. So I'm kind of throwing the same question I said to Samaria, to you, because you're leaving college. And you know, uh, you have a very interesting story as well, if you want to kind of share how you're different than most of the participants. But I'm interested as to why you decided to jump onto the program. Well, first, um, I do want to mention something else that's like great about this program is learning from each and every person that's involved in it. I know I've learned a lot from the participants, and I think that's one of the benefits for it as well. It's just what we can learn from each other. 
Um, but yeah, I actually was thinking about that as you were talking about the program. I'm like, I remember that phone call distinctly. I was sitting there at work because I had the pleasure of being the student assistant to the uh, School of Music and um, which part of my duties was answering the main line. And Rachel came through and mentioned it and um, I knew exactly who to go to was Dr. Russell and it sounded so amazing because it, it, it was definitely in my line of interest and just I love kids. I worked with um, a performing arts camp that had children from all walks of life, all backgrounds and making things more accessible for them which is like ah and then on top of it with music. So um, I sent it over to Dr. Russell and then she just emails me like weeks later, like, yeah, did you get a, a message from Canton? I'm like, um, I wasn't looking for it, but let me, let me go pull it up. And it was this program and I was so excited. And Dr. Russell was like, you were the first person I thought of. So I, I'm so excited to be a part of this. Um, my background is I am definitely a non-traditional student. I um, graduated in 1998. And um, I, I always loved music and I, I dabbled in the college thing, but you know, life gets involved and I decided to go to work and I followed the money, like, oh, that job makes some good money for someone in their twenties. And then just, I get to my thirties, late thirties. I'm like, I'm not happy. And I watched my mother in her sixties, go back to school and finish her psychology degree after raising kids. And she just turned and looked at me. She's like, it's your turn. I'm gonna get emotional, <laughs> but she's like, it's your turn. Go back, follow your passion. And I got to go back to school. I wasn't hundred percent on what I wanted to do. And then the music um, administrator at Tri-C walked up to me and remembered me from Candide in the 2000s at Tri-C. Wow. It's the hair. I have the same hair. <laughs> And she's like, you, you were one of my vocalists, weren't you? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, you need to join my choir. Got me in choir. She's like, have you thought of doing theory? And then all of a sudden I'm entering music classes. And I decided then that, you know, obviously music's been in my heart. And I realized around that time too, that I had a very classical sound and just it developed and my passion for it grew and decided to audition for Cleveland State because I had got to be in their opera workshop as a non-student and I was like, I love this atmosphere. I went and, and I graduated and I, it is the best decision I ever made was to go for my passion mm -hmm. and just bringing me down to this pathway of working with the kids at performing arts school. And then now I'm wanting to do arts administration and being involved in this kind of stuff. And this program is so important because there's, there's so much that can be done to make it better, make it more accessible, make it more accessible for low income, people of color, women. There's so much we can do and there's, there's enough room for everybody in music. And it's a universal language that we all speak. So why not let everybody be involved? Ugh. I love every time Valerie opens your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible, yeah. Valerie. So I'm curious for all, all three of you, did any of you, were any of you followers of the podcast before you became members of the OCLP? I had actually saw two podcasts beforehand. I'm like, what is this? And I listened to it. And um, this was like 
probably back when you guys were doing season one. So before the birth of this amazing situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this, this is so necessary just in general, because it was right at the height of everything going on. And, you know, the arts is the one thing that people kind of turn the blind eye to. It's like, oh, that's just how it's always been. It doesn't need to always be that way. So I thought this was a great thing. And then it turned into this. So I love it. Good job. Yay. (laughs) So part of the program, as Irene mentioned to all of us, part of the program is listening to many, if not all, of the episodes of the podcast. All three of you, I know, are aware or were aware even going in of the issues surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion in the world of classical music. Despite that, what were some of the most impactful things that you learned from the podcast guests as well as the guests in the OCLP? Uh, Samaria, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so um, I was just very, um, I don't know how to put it. I don't, I wouldn't say surprised, but I just, I love to see and hear how many people are very passionate Mm -hmm. about the subjects that we talk about, because, you know, sometimes it's very hard to have these uncomfortable conversations about these topics and to just hear and learn and listen to these people talk about their experiences and how they are helping so many students and kids and people in general just to educate them and it was just it was very nice to hear and to be able to see how passionate they are Mm, yeah i yeah Yeah. that's a really good point i think that's something that um has been kind uh, something for me as well samari is uh, is seeing just how much good stuff is happening and just highlighting that because I think we can easily get bogged down in the highlighting of everything negative, but I feel like we could make more change if we highlight all of these awesome positive things that are happening. Um, But yeah, Irene, what about for you? Um, I definitely have to second what Samaria said about Mm -hmm. finding out the people that are doing work, people and organizations too. I have a certain soft spot for the nonprofit sector since I've done some work in the nonprofit sector. So it was really cool for me to learn all over the country, not just in my immediate area of like the DC area or the Columbus area of these different organizations that are doing amazing things. Um, I also found an area where I did a lot of learning was within the field of orchestras themselves, both orchestra management, being an orchestra musician, uh, getting to talk and listen to people from the league uh, was all something that's very new to me. Uh, I, I come from a band background, being a flute player. I did a little bit of orchestra stuff in high school, but as you all probably know, Ohio State is a very, very, very band focused place. Yeah. Um, so that was something that was very new to me, both some of the, ec- I could conceive of some of the equity issues within the field of orchestra themselves, but the kind of the day-to-day life of managing an orchestra, of being an orchestral musician and trying to make your living as an orchestral musician um, was stuff that was all very new to me that really opened my eyes a lot. It was a field that I just didn't really know that much about at all. Yeah. Valerie, what about you? I'm the same. I mean, (laughs) I think the most eye-opening thing is not only seeing how much lack of diversity is within music, 
because you're just you're trained to just think like these are the founding fathers this is the music you Mm -hmm. study and then just even hearing some of the people talk and learning about composers that who I love history and I learn about this stuff um I didn't even hear about or ever know about I'm like hearing that even their photos were whitewashed to make them more accessible and stuff um and like in my heart internally I'm like hurt because the number one thing as artists is we want to be heard we want to share our passion with each other and the audience so just learning about all that but in the same aspect of seeing how many people are like you know it there's time for a change like this this can't continue and seeing their passion um sparks your passion even more to make the change and it's just a collaboration of everything it's, it's so inspiring yeah I'm curious. I know there were several times, like, yes, I, I invited all these people to speak and I, I, you know, knew some about these topics, but I learned a whole lot too (laughs) while we were doing the program. Um, I'm curious uh, if there was a particular session that really stands out to you or a speaker that stands out to you, not necessarily, you know, just because you feel like you really learned something from them. I know, I've learned so much from Eric Gould and all the time that I've spent with him uh, so far of him being on the podcast and speaking, but his presentation, which was right at the beginning, I know we all got really fired up after that, Uh, but I'm curious if there's a a session or a speaker that particularly stands out to you. Irene, maybe? Yeah, I was definitely thinking about our conversation with Chamber Queer. Mm. It really brought up a conversation about how so much of our 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 arts system of funding is based kind of on catering mm. to privilege. And that was that was something I knew. I used to work with a nonprofit based in East Hampton, New York called International Music Sessions. So that meant that I had to Uh, I think I said this during our meeting with Chamber Queer, you know, put on my clown shoes and do my song and dance routine in order to get money. But it was just, it really just kind of brought that to the forefront of my brain and really made me realize that we're going to, in order to try and revolutionize the genre, we need to figure out how to kind of escape from these funding methods because it is something that has such a huge hold over our industry. Mm -hmm. So that was that was big for me. Um, uh, I think also, again, we also got the chance, not only did we listen to the podcast, I had my informational interview with Dr. Abrantes, but uh, our meeting with her mm. was also something I found very interesting just mm. on a personal level. Yeah. Um, considering that she comes from a performance background and is now working in education and just seeing her journey to figuring out her specific style of teaching without say in the inundation of pedagogical classes that I am receiving through my music education degree Mm -hmm. so that was both of those were things that were very interesting yeah the chamber queer conversation was um and chamber queer is an organization based in New York that performs um uh, chamber works and classical music works by uh people from the queer community and they, but their their conversation actually ended up being pretty funding focused, which I thought was really interesting how that was such a huge topic for them. And that I think that all show, showed us how big funding is an issue in 
American nonprofits specifically, because we, I mean, we don't even want to get into the difference of how European stuff gets funded very different. Um, but yeah. Well, so, Rachel yeah, yeah. and I were talking the other day just about how if you go to any American orchestra's website, mm -hmm. there is going to be a large donate button somewhere yeah. prominently at the top of the yeah. website. Europe? Nope. You don't see it at all. Yeah. I, I went to the Berlin Philharmonics page and nothing. Just, boop, here's what we do. Come see our concerts. Vienna, it's literally, they, they don't even have education or most, community engagement. Most it's, European orchestras don't. Really, the only European orchestras that deal in education, community engagement are in the UK. London was really the first one to do anything. Um, it's such a unique thing to America um, because usually the that now we're going on a tangent about how the government funds orchestras in Europe, but yeah. Um, Samaria, was there a, 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 con a session or something that really stands out to you? Oh yeah. Eric Gold. Cause, mm. uh, he taught me so much that I didn't know that I feel like I should have known. And it's very sad that I didn't know. Mm. Like when he talked about the black minstrelsy, mm. that was just shocking and heartbreaking to me, but it really was like, wow like this is actually like this is the like this it just all came together is what I like I'm trying to say because I just I didn't know about all the stuff that happened and I was very sad that I didn't learn it sooner mm -hmm. and yeah it was just it was very shocking mm -hmm. and heartbreaking but it was amazing that I was able to learn it mm -hmm. and uh you know Eric's conversation talking about you know the whitewashing of of classical music in America and kind of where the root of a lot of what we think of as even popular music and, and, and what we listen to on the radio, um, a really, really poignant conversation. And Eric does not shy away from hard topics at all. But, you know, Samaria just said, it's sad that I didn't know it earlier, but how could you have, right? If it's not taught to you, if no one teaches it to you. Um, so that became a big topic for us and kind of a theme, I think, for the entire summer. Um, yeah, Valerie, what about you? I too was very engaged in, I mean, in all of them, but Eric Gold's, he just, as a history buff, just really opened my eyes to a lot of the stuff and made me realize there's so much more that I can learn that I have to go search for because it's just, it's a perfect example of how the education system is set up to re not really focus on things. And then you get to college and you have to be degree specific to learn about other things. And it's just, it's history. Mm -hmm. It's our history and it's their history. And um, additionally, I also learned a lot from Deshaun Burton mm -hmm. as a vocalist and just the struggles he, he had to go through to get it like just from society's point of view. You know, for me, I hear an amazing voice. Just how can you not want that to be a part of your program? But, um, you know, through his presentation and then taking that and discussing it with my friends of, um, who have gone through it, it's the same thing where it's just like, well, we have to search elsewhere to do other things because there's not enough for us. And that again, just proves why this program that we're doing is so important because you need to get those faces up there. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, having the kids be like, well, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. There's not one person representing me on stage. And all you need is to plant that seed for that child to be like, I can do that too. Yeah. yeah. And then starts filtering in. Mm -hmm. So those two speakers really, you know, along with Shaver Queer, I mean, there were so many amazing 
presenters that it's kind of hard to just choose one. Yeah, I mean, we were super, I mean, we were super lucky this year that all these people were wanting to give their time. And um, it was so exciting for me to see you all engage with uh, some people I knew already and some people were were new. I I just reached out to them and they were willing to talk. And um, it's just amazing how, uh, how this community um, really wants things to change because I think all the people we've had conversations with understand that if we don't, we won't be here. And then the things that we love and what we want to do is going to disappear. And that was something, you know, I, I said this, I was not, I was of course not involved in the day to day goings on of the OCLP. You popped I, I was a wallflower <laughs> for a couple of episodes, including chamber queer, which was just spectacular. Uh, but I was also a presenter, and, and I said this in when I presented in the on the conductor's panel that I am not a diverse person in this industry. I'm, I'm a white male in this industry, and coming from the background that I come from, really, I learned all of this from scratch in the in the course of the podcast. I it had not occurred to me the importance of DEI issues in our industry to the future survival. I mean, if I want to continue to do what I love to do so much that I've been pursuing for the past 12 years, a career in conducting, it's going to be essential for the survival of the art form. So I certainly had my eyes opened through the course of the first two seasons of this podcast. And I know that I've come up with my own thoughts about, okay, this is what we can do in the short term Mm. to start putting us on a good path. And then this is what we can work towards in the long term. I have my ideas about that, but having participated in the OCLP, I'd love to hear from the three of you. Short term, we can do this immediately. Long term, this is going to take a while, but we're going to work towards this. Valerie, let's hear from you first. Short term, I think it would be wonderful for college students and performers to go to schools, especially schools that are diverse from themselves at, and also having that diverse performer with you and performing and showing these kids mm. like, oh, I can do that. Um, I have a friend who participated in a program like that, went to schools and he's a person of color who has a beautiful operatic voice and different type. He can do all genres, but just him singing um, a piece from the Messiah, like these kids were in awe. Like I can do that and I look like you. So I think short-term, something as easy as that, um, just to plant the seed. Long-term, I think um, we need to get it together and show that arts are important, number one because it's proven that without arts, other things suffer. So that first and foremost, and then start being active and and getting involved to make sure that everybody gets access. Something as simple as the program that we're trying to put together. I mean, work with your your community, what you have. Um, Work with colleges to have them come in and mentor these kids. And then those kids will wanna work with other, you know, younger kids. Um, we just all have to get involved. Yeah, I think the idea of going into schools uh, with, with people of color 
who are professionals go into schools and perform in front of students of color. It, uh, I, I would guess that would have an incredible impression. Uh, I had the joy of being on the conductor's panel with Jerry Lynn Johnson, who said that really the most important thing you can do is to increase the representation on stage more than anything else. And that that was a, a new perspective for me. And Jerry has not, at least as of yet, been an episode on the podcast. Hopefully we can get her on a future season. But that was definitely a new perspective for me, that overall, on stage, what you see on stage is the most important thing. And if people can just get from a young age, I belong here. That person looks like me. I can do what they're doing. I think it would go a long way. Uh, so I, I totally agree. That's a wonderful, wonderful idea. Samaria, how about you? Yeah, so um, there's something I wanted to say. So when I first started out learning from George Dean, I became a part of the Canton Guitar Society, and we did our rehearsals at the Symphony Center. And the first time that I walked into the Symphony Center, I don't know if he remembers, but I walked in there, and it was my sophomore year of high school, and... I said that I felt like I didn't deserve to be in such like a beautiful place. I mean, cause like the windows, you know, when like the sunset would happen, it was just beautiful, so beautiful to me. And he like looked at me and he said, don't ever say that again to, you know, think that I don't deserve to be in a place as beautiful as that. And I think that relates to, you know, children of color because they are systematically taught that they aren't worthy enough of success. And I think by showing them, you know, what Valerie said, by going into the schools and showing them that they can really succeed, I think it's all about unlearning what uh, we have been systematically taught. And I think it would really help the mindset of the children to really see that they can succeed as well. Um, in the long run, I think that, you know, stuff starts out small and then it like keeps going. I feel like all these little organizations that are going on that are helping towards this cause, you know, it eventually all turns into a big worldwide thing. And I think that, you know, starting off small and it eventually growing, especially with the program that we are doing now, I think that's how it would help. Mm, yeah. I was struck uh, by the podcast that by listening to all of our guests, just and along these lines, Everybody has a role to play. Everybody is sort of a cog in the wheel. You have Flo Janani working on getting representation on the board. You've got Anna Abrantes working on getting people in at the ground level when they're very young, starting off at that point. You have Jerry, who is putting together an orchestra that is on stage is extremely diverse. People on every level working towards this. And I think it's very powerful if we all, if, if everybody plays their part, everybody does their part, mm -hmm. one step at a time, we can work towards where we ultimately want to be. And if we have people like George Dean who look at young people like you, Samaria, and say, no, you do belong here. You're not allowed to say that. Because uh, Samaria, you definitely do. Um, I, I've told you so many times. I wish you could come hang out more. I need. <laughs> I want you to just always be helping me at the symphony because you're amazing. Um, I, you know, I, we need allies as well. People 
who are not people of color to advocate for this just as much and to be vocal and to use their positions of privilege to say, hey, you know, this is what needs to be done. People do belong here and we need to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah. right now, white people are the gatekeepers mm. of this industry. Yeah. The, the unfortunate reality is th that's, that's the world we live in right now. Mm. Now, in 20 years, 40 years, ideally, we won't need the podcast. We won't need the OCLP. And all of these issues will be solved. But in the current moment, the gate, we, the people who are not of diverse backgrounds, we, the gatekeepers, need to be especially cognizant of our role that we have to play in making a more diverse profession. Yeah, um, because uh, when I like, when I talk to George about these things, I'm like, at first I was so very surprised that he was open to talk about it because not a lot of people are. Um, and a lot of the time I'm like, well, are like, do they want to talk about this? Like, is it okay? Will they get upset or anything? And he was very open to it. And which I think plays a big part because, you know, having those conversations, especially as a teacher and a student to have those conversations was just very comforting to me because it was like, you know, it was like, he was, he was being very understanding and there's times where I was like, you know, if you don't want to have these conversations, just like, let me know. And he was like, I absolutely do. You know, it's something that it's a very learning process. And I was just very lucky to have him be my teacher mm -hmm. and to have him have these conversations with me that not a lot of people want to have. Yeah. We need more teachers like that. Irene, how about you? Short term, what we can do immediately and long term, what we can work towards. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on this issue. Uh, <laughs> of in, the in the short term, obviously, I agree with everyone, what everyone has said so far about putting representation on the stage uh, in all sorts of different performing roles. I also think it's very important that we increase the diversity of our programming, not just at the professional orchestral level, but all the way down to like elementary school, baby band and orchestra. Yeah. There, um, and here's the thing when I talk about diversity is that I think I see very often, um, both in the field of classical music and outside that people go, oh, we have someone who breaks this, you know, cishet white male status quo. We have one person that breaks the status quo. We did a diversity, everyone, applause and diversity is not necessarily the inclusion of someone who breaks the status quo but that you have a different variety of people who break the status quo all included in uh this one singular event so that's something that's critical when it comes to diversity and programming that tends to often get overlooked uh, when a lot of well-meaning organizations try to diversify their programming and diversify their soloists and the people in their orchestra and things like that. Long term, here's, here's my onion here, is that there are barriers to entry at every single level of classical music, especially instrumental music, uh, with the barrier being instruments. So in order to truly revolutionize our field, we need targeted efforts at every single level. So for example, at the elementary school level, getting instruments in people's hands who might not be able to afford it, like what we're doing with our program or like what Sphinx does with the Overture program, yeah. things like that. Uh, then getting lessons to students who might not necessarily be able to afford it 
Or additionally, students who don't necessarily speak English, getting them lessons in their own target language. Mm -hmm. I grew up speaking Spanish at home. So this is something that I find personally very important um, is that we have a language barrier right now in classical music in the United States. Then you get them slightly higher, creating scholarships for students to participate in youth orchestras or summer festivals. Again, I go to Sphinx because they're doing a great job. Um, allowing students to pursue further musical opportunities without the barrier of cost being an issue. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the collegiate level, uh, not only is cost a huge barrier, and I know we can look at several universities that are making strides to fix this, for example. I don't know if any of you guys have read uh, the Eastman School of Music's document that they released last year about how they plan to equitize the School of Music, and I know one of their plans in the long run is to cover the cost, like meet all demonstrated financial need for any Black students who get into the Eastman School of Music. So more programs like that to allow college to be accessible. Furthermore, uh, because our schools of music and our conservatories are structured in such a way that assumes students have a background in music, th music theory and a background mm -hmm. in music history, providing adequate resources um, for students once they get to college to be able to thrive. Absolutely, all the love to my school of music at Ohio State, but there is an issue where a lot of students who didn't necessarily come from like middle class to upper middle class high schools did not have AP theory, mm -hmm. get into their entry level theory classes and immediately get punched in the face because the classes are being taught in a way that assumes that they have this foundation. So providing one is making sure that all schools have access to this type of material or if you attend this type of school that there is a way for you to access this type of material and two, making sure students are supported in whatever their needs might be as they move through the collegiate system. And then once you get out of uh, the collegiate system, be it if you're going into education, performance, conducting, arts administration, one, making sure that there are programs that allow you to kind of gain the necessary professional skills in mm -hmm. order, because because there is a higher expectation for minoritized people yeah. within all industries mm -hmm. being able to unfortunately have to overcome this barrier because yeah. right now this is something that exists and unfortunately we have to deal it if we want to diversify our yeah. field mm -hmm. um programs like that programs such as again <laughs> for the third time go to sphinx their program for getting uh black and latinx musicians on concert mm -hmm. on audition lists and sub lists and places like that um, fellowships for conductors. I was very fortunate enough to do the Girls Who Conduct mm -hmm. Fellowship for free, mm -hmm. um, which is absolutely wonderful. They're doing great work with that program. Uh, just eliminating cost barriers, eliminating access barriers, making sure that students have the list of things on their resume that allows them to access further areas of their career, regardless of any kind of financial burden, transportation burden, language burden, things like that. If we want to have, and it all connects, right? Because right now we're trying to diversify who we're putting on stage and who we're putting in our concert programs, but there's a limited pool to draw upon because the whole system is weeding out minoritized mm -hmm. musicians as they go up the chain. Yeah. And so it all feeds, it'll, once we start fixing this cycle, it'll start benefiting our, it'll start benefiting the whole chain, right? Because mm -hmm. once we have more 
musicians of color getting out of the school of music and conservatory system and actually going into the field, then we'll have more people to put on stage to inspire the next younger generation of musicians. So uh, with what Matthew was saying about how cool it is that you have people doing work uh, at each and every single level of the classical music world, it's super cool. And I agree. Um, but we need a, I think a lot more of a targeted attack at every single level of the classical music industry in order to truly be able to make any kind of change at all and not just kind of elevate the uh, few and far between of minoritized musicians and mm -hmm. say, look, we did it. Right. And the, <laughs> and the danger of tokenizing um, of, of, you know, this idea of finding one and then being like, we did it because we helped this person succeed. Yay us. I would say, yeah. first of all, Irene, what an awesome. incredible <laughs> answer. And you could write a treatise. She has. You, you, that, I mean, I feel like <laughs> what you just said could just be published as the treatise on how to approach addressing this issue in the long term. Uh, uh, on the tokenizing thing, I'm not sure I ever said this on the podcast before, but when I got into the the school that I got my where I got my master's degree, they sent a beautiful booklet about what to expect when arriving at the school. And on the front page of this booklet, there was a black violist. And when I got to the school, there was not a single black person in the orchestra. This black violist had graduated the year before I arrived. He actually did uh, play in my graduation recital through a friend of a friend, essentially. So I did end up working with him, but he wasn't a student. And yet this is the material. This is the, these are the materials that they were sending out to us. Oh, look, we have, we're a diverse school. We have one black violist who graduated and now the orchestra is just white people and Asians and that's it. So yeah, I, I've totally seen it in, in my own life in the profession. Yeah. Um, for any of you out there who are composers, arrangers, orchestrators, I think that there is going to be very, very shortly a real market for educational arrangements of music by women and people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I am, as the music director of the Canton Youth Symphonies here, I've really been looking for this upcoming season at programming music by women and people of color. And I found one arrangement of one movement of a William Grant Sill symphony that is basically a specific educational arrangement of a black composer's music there really isn't much else out there. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a, a composer, arranger, orchestrator, you could, you could be, you could find a lucrative business here in the next several years as this becomes more and more important, hopefully across the board. Yeah. And I, Irene, you know, all of those wonderful things that you just said, it's, it's tough I think it's tough for people to listen to when they don't vehemently care about it because they're like, oh, that's so much. Ooh, can, is there one, is there like an easy thing I can fund? Can I just like donate to this one little thing? And then like, then I feel good about the thing I've donated to. Uh, but it is a very complicated, nuanced issues, plural, many things. 
that we are going to have to reckon with and we're going to have to deal with, uh, yes, in music education, but in education and in our country at large. Um, and, you know, Samaria mentioned this earlier. She said, it's been a year. I think we all know. Um, it's been a year and a half now, basically. Um, two years, who knows? But No, with, not two years. Um, well, <laughs> Don't <you> know. say <laughs> that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, with just, like, the world and things happening. But... I th it's one of those things that this is going to be work that we have to continue for the rest of our lives and we can't allow it to be something that we backslide on and, and, and the world at large kind of forgets about it until the next really bad thing happens and then we suddenly decide to care about it again because, yeah, you know, I went to a conservatory of music. I had AP music theory in high school. I got to skip out of most of music theory because I'd already taken it, right? So that put me ahead and I didn't have to take all those classes so I could do other things, right? as opposed to some of my friends who had never touched music theory and were like, what is happening? I don't understand. Um, but it, it's like what Jeff Talpert said. Um, I was re-listening to his episode of the podcast when talking about education. He said, uh, like, think about swimming. If someone is swimming for the first time, whether they're three or eight years old, you're going to start them in the beginner class because they've never sw swam before. You're not going to throw the eight-year-old in the five-foot water and say, swim because you're eight. You should be able to. Um, but that's kind of the approach we take in education and in music at education. Large. At I mean, large. Not, not, just, not just music. That's yeah. sort of the education approach at large. Mm -hmm. And so, Irene, your point of minorities having an even bigger gap that they're having to prove that they're worth it almost, which is, you know, such a we're, it's that's not the case at all, right? Everyone is, should be on an equal standing here. But and let, let me say something to that effect. Uh, for any of you NPR listeners out there, just this week, Marketplace did an eye-opening story about a, a researcher who submitted 90,000 resumes to jobs across the country at companies large and small. They were identical resumes. Half of them had, there was a white female name and a white male name, a black female name and a black male name. And they showed, as you might expect, that truly it was otherwise identical. No text changed other than the name. And the black names got a callback less frequently than the white names, statistically significant, less yeah. frequently. Now, he did say that there were some of the, the top 20 co corporations in the U.S. were even more egregious mm -hmm. than the smaller ones that they looked at. So it, it was eye-opening, yeah. to and, say the least. And, and your point about, um, you know, resumes and training and learning how to do all this, I, that's why it was so important this summer that we talk about resumes quickly because it is kind of expected of you when you enter the workforce that you know how to do this. And oftentimes in music schools especially, it is not taught at all. N never. And so I really wanted to make sure we hit that. Um, but yeah, I think Val Valerie, you look, you have your face that I know very well now. Of, you have a thought. <laughs> I wanted to, to comment on the not having the foundation and entering into music school um, myself. I hadn't ever really learned to read music. And my experiences through school growing up, it was, this is, this is where you are, just follow when they go up and down, this is a rest. 
so when I decided I had to take like an eight week course of music, basic music reading and entered into music theory and, and musicianship, which I have a really good ear, but it's one of those, I hear it once, I know it, but if you asked me to cite, you know, that kind of stuff, it was difficult at the time. Um, so with me coming in brand spanking new with people who had been exposed to it since they were younger, as well as some of the more diverse people that came in with me, it was literally painstakingly hard to figure it out. And even down to the musicianship, um, thank God, my amazing voice teacher, Mrs. Moore, figured out um, what it was because when you're trying to learn, you're getting so many different ways put in your head. Some people just learn differently. And I had two friends who were minority that were gonna drop out because they're like, I can't do this. I'm like, take Mrs. Moore's class. It's a little harder, but if you go to her and like, look, I, I know what I'm doing. I just don't know how to get it there. She will sit down with you and she will figure it out and reteach you. And it's, it, and not a lot of places have that. Not a lot of teachers are willing to do that. And it, you know, when you have these more diverse people coming up into it and they're already starting with behind because they haven't had the same exposure it's almost also systematically set up to be like okay well if you can't do it so sad bye-bye when all they need is to have just like that one teacher be like I know what it is mm-hmm. let's work through it yeah yeah and unfortunately you know the profession is so competitive that I mean for it doesn't matter who you are it is already a ruthlessly competitive profession. And then add on top of that, that you're starting behind where your peers are starting. And then it just seems like, it seems like an insurmountable goal at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we've been, I can't believe we've been talking as long as we've been talking already. Um, I, I, this is kind of how our classes go. We, you know, we just talk for a long time about a lot of things. Um, but kind of as we're winding down, I'll let Matthew think what his kind of final thought for you all is. But I'm curious as to um, your real opinion of of the program, of the Canton Symphony, of the, the world of orchestral music. And what, what like, I know we're, we're trying, I'm trying, but what are some things we still are missing the mark on? Like, what do we need to do uh, for the future? So um, I know I'm, please criticize me. Um, I don't know, Valerie, maybe starting with you, if you have anything that you think the symphony could be doing better. Overall, I, I really do and did enjoy this program so much so I'm really sad it's ending because I feel like there's so much more that we can do and need to do. And our group is just, we're so good together. Mm -hmm. And um, I love how your symphony has taken a problem, you see it, and you're like, we need to do more instead of just like, oh, let's throw out this concert and represent, um, you know, tokenize a concert. You know, you're actively trying to make changes. Um, I, this is something you should continue. And honestly, maybe extend it to be an ongoing thing. 
And um, I'm not just saying this because I know some of us are like, oh, we're going to miss this. Um, have even past people still be involved with it, mentoring the new people, mm. expanding it out. Um, I think with the experiences and the passion we all have, this is something that can really grow and grow and grow mm. as you move on with it. Um, and tackle on other things, you know, continue to help with the program we're trying to build mm. um, and then take that and put it in with something else. Um, I think you'll, you did a great job. You picked the right people <laughs> for the right time. You set up amazing speakers, continue to have those speakers um, and just build on what you have because mm. you have an amazing foundation. Um, I love that and, idea. You know, I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody. If you want to actually have a division, we would all be more than happy to apply <laughs> <laughs> and work for this. Oh, but um, it just shows that what this is, it's needed, it's necessary, and it's moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. I love that idea of, of, because mentorship has been a big theme for us. So I will definitely keep that in mind. I think that's a really awesome idea. Irene, what about you? Yeah. So overall, I'm a really big fan of the work you guys are doing. I think you, you not just within the context of OCLP, but like the Canton Symphony as a whole, I think you guys are doing a lot more efforts towards equity and diversity and inclusion than some orchestras with bigger budgets no no tino shade no pink lemonade but it's true <laughs> um but yeah overall i think it's been a really uh great array of guests um i think and because i kind of know i've gotten to know the orchestra both within the context of orchestrating change but also since i got the chance to work with your youth orchestras yeah. over the past year um i think that continuing what you're doing with diversity of repertoire within the youth orchestra is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm not sure of too much about how the youth orchestra works, but I think if there were more scholarship opportunities mm -hmm. yeah. for students uh, uh, who are lower income to get involved, because it's really such a wonderful program you guys have, um, more opportunities for low income students to get involved there. And I think, I don't know if you guys have any kind of student ticket discount for going to we see. Do. It's yeah. free actually yeah. for 18 and under yeah. to attend concerts. No, no matter who you are, you don't have to be a student, youth symphony member, anything. Mm -hmm. and 18 then, and under is free I at think, the Canton Symphony. I think college kids are $10. $10. Yeah. College okay. kids are $10. So yeah, like publicizing that a lot more because that's yeah. fantastic. That's really great. And I think that'd be a great way to get the local community a lot more yeah. involved. But overall, big fan of what you guys are oh. doing. It's it's awesome. Yeah. And you know, I'm working so hard on Youth Symphony this year to, to let people know that we do have scholarships because I don't think you're right. I don't think we've done a good job in the past of making it abundantly clear that if you need financial help, we've got you because um, we can, we do have funds for that. We just haven't really advertised that in the past. So I feel like in the past, maybe some people just didn't apply because they thought it would be too expensive. So I'm really hoping that, um, that, that this year that changes a little bit and it continues to grow more. And especially with the after school program you're working on that eventually that leads to some more people feeling like they even could belong in the youth symphony. Cause I know that that's a big problem too, is if you're the only black student in a youth symphony that can be pretty isolating. Um, and uh, that was the case for us last year with yeah, our ensemble. We have had a few mm -hmm. black students, but, but they not every year. And even in the years we do, not in every ensemble. Yeah. I mean, it's really one 
maybe two right yeah. at a given time yeah uh samari i'll throw it to you um rachel i think you've done like an outstanding job at this um i i've learned so much and i'm inspired by everyone that participated and I think that when we first started, I know that Rachel, you and I mentioned that, you know, the Symphony Center is right there. It's right connected to McKinley. And a lot of the kids at McKinley, you know, they don't know, you know, what the Canton Symphony Orchestra like does or like they've never seen a concert. And I know that with this program that they will be more involved with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will be a really good thing for the students to be able to see, you know, what's right next door to them. and. I don't know. It's been it's been an amazing experience. I'm very sad that it's ending. Aww. It's just it's so sad that it's ending because it's like, you know, you get all fired up and you know you're working and then like Valerie said you want to do so much more. But um I'm very excited to see where this will go and I know that it's going to, you know, keep and continue to grow on and on. Yeah, and th that's something else too of of making sure that we really let the McKinley kids know, especially our high schoolers. You can literally just walk over from your classroom. We're connected to your high school. Just come on over. Um, and so trying to do a better job of that now that we're kind of out of the COVID year. Um, uh, but yeah, I, Samar, I'm so glad to hear you all say that. I, you know, I'll, I'll speak a little bit about where the idea for this came from. Obviously it came from the podcast, but it came from, I've been fortunate to participate and several leadership programs through my life. Um, and this is this program is a blend of uh, what I did when I was in college at in Baldwin-Wallace at the Center for Innovation and Growth. I had an internship where we did research projects and put together programming for uh, companies. Not It was not arts-related at all. I worked for a car manufacturer. Um, but I learned a lot about the process of making something happen. And then also my experience with the League of American Orchestras at the Essentials for Orchestra Management. So I tried to take my experience in those two places and merge it together to create a program where students would be able to develop as leaders, but also create something that they could then, and I, this sometimes is like a bad thing to say, but put it on your resume so that you can have content and have experiences to show future employers like, hey, I created a thing. It's still happening. You can go check it out uh, because that's the powerful stuff that puts you ahead in the field and puts you ahead um, with life experience of being able to say that you've you've done stuff like this. So I'm really glad you all enjoyed it. I've had so much fun doing it. It's been my highlight of my weeks. Um, so I'm so, so glad to hear you all say that. I, Matthew, do you have any last questions, thoughts for us? Yeah, so obviously... This was not just something that you couldn't put on your resume. Yes. So it was much, much, much more than that for all of you. And so as we close, I'd love to hear what is the biggest way that your participation in the OCLP has changed you as a person? Mm. Samaria, we'll start with you. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, I think really big question okay um I think that it's changed me in that I am more open to have these conversations mm -hmm. I you know as I said before it's hard to know people are very open to have these conversations and it's nice to be in an atmosphere where everybody is kind of 
they're okay with it and they want to have these conversations. Um, it's made me a lot more passionate. It's something that, you know, I've thought about, you know, when I do end up teaching, you know, advocating for my students and making sure that I'm doing the right things for my students of color and everything. And it's made me also want to listen more and not always have, I don't always have to speak is what I kind of realized. You know, I don't always have to have something to say on the topic, but it's also nice to, you know, just listen to what everybody has to say and then just take it in, you know, and I think it's definitely made me a better person in that I, I just, I'm so much more passionate about this and it's really just fueled for like when I just like go into college and, you know, when after that, I'm just so excited and so very grateful that I had the opportunity to do this. Samaria, by the way, I just talking to you for the past hour, I would never guess if you hadn't told me that you were not even in college yeah. yet. Truly. I actually I actually turned 18 like when we were on July 1st. It was like the Thursday that we were doing the orchestrating change. Yeah. <laughs> it was oh like gosh. yeah. It was like she started as at, at the program at 17. Unbelievable. I know. She you do not you compose yourself and act um much more mature. Uh, I think than your age. So yeah, I, I never would have guessed yeah. if you hadn't told me at the top of the hour, I never would have guessed. Yeah. I, yeah. I, the, the, the point about listening, um, I'm really glad that's such an important thing for humans, adults to learn in their life is, is that skill of listening. I love that. Irene, how about you? I think the program has definitely made me more connected. I feel like I have so many more professional contacts and people that I could reach out to for mentorship mm -hmm. than I did going into the summer. Um, that's been really cool because that is something I know like, oh, if I have a question about XYZ, I now know who I can reach out to be, hey, please help me. Um, I also think both that expanding network and also the conversations with the other participants um, has made, and working on the project has made me a lot more confident. Uh, it's made me a lot more secure in my own professional abilities and my ability to cultivate, uh, again, always with the network, cultivate a network, mm -hmm. um, and to kind of take, made me realize that I can take my ideas and put them in, into paper and that I can rely on other people. And when we combine our ideas, we create things that are just super cool and insane. So overall, I think it's made me more connected and confident. I love that. Yes. Use your network. Please use your network. <laughs> Finally, Valerie, what are your thoughts? Um, it has definitely opened me. Um, growing up and like all these different timelines of things happening along this line, like it's shown me how much more aware even like our youth are. And it gives me so much respect for them. Um, you know, I agree, Samaria, you would have never thought, but just regardless, like just seeing the passion planted in her, it's like showing me that even though I'm at my age, it doesn't work. Well, that's just how it is. No, no. Like as a community, we need to join together. And if we join together and we listen, um, we can act. Um, it's also shown me that I can do a lot more than I thought I could, um, and really shown that like I, I have a passion for something and a drive and it's given me this almost like a compass of the direction that I want to go and what I can do for others. Um, 
it's also allowed me to speak up on things. Um, just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone that's putting on a performance of 50 years in his life of performance, and he's a person of color. And um, I told him about this program, and now he's going to open it up to allow students within his community to come in and watch his just a celebration of 50 years of singing um, to show that, hey, I come from where you came from and look where it got me. So just planting that seed into others and continuously be like, you know, we can do this. Um, it's really helped me see that just speaking to others on it can make a change. And, um, and the passion is the biggest thing. I just, I love where this is going. And I, I really enjoyed everybody I work with. Well, I want to thank you three and the rest of our OCLP peeps who have been with me all summer. You, This has been, um, uh, I think it, it exceeded my expectations. I, I was not sure what to expect. It's, you know, the first time we're doing it. It was on Zoom. Um, you know, it's, it's I, you know, not ideally what I would have, the format would, that I would have wanted, but you all made it worth it. And you all really showed me that, um, that this is this is a thing that's going to work because we have people who are students who are excited and ready to do this work and um, I'm just so grateful I was able to come along the journey with with you three and the rest of you who are listening hello um, and I definitely will miss you all too and we won't lose contact I will don't worry I will rope you into all sorts of things it, it'll happen you'll get voluntold don't worry it'll happen <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. And thank you from me representing the orchestra. Thank you for participating in the OCLP. Three of our participants from the inaugural year of the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program, Irene Guggenheim-Triana, Samaria Hill, and Valerie Mathis. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.